John chapter 19, as we have three lessons left after this, and it's looking like we will end just finishing our seven book. The Lord planned that. I could never have done that in a million years. I know he did it. Three three teaching lessons, because the last day will be sharing day, and it looks like that's exactly how it's going to work out. Three more, because I make each lesson into two. So today is lesson 172, Satan's Hour of Darkness. It's actually lesson 172A. Next week will be 172B. Or not next week. Three weeks from today. That's right. We don't have it. We have two weeks off. This is the Passion Week. You all know that, don't you? Sunday, remember, was the day of presentation. Palm Sunday. Monday was the day of, what did we call it? Uh, demonstration, I think. When he went into the temple Monday on his way in, he cursed a fruitless fig tree, and then when he got into Jerusalem, went straight to the temple, and what did he do? He cleansed a fruitless temple. <laughs> uh, he cleansed the temple. That was Monday, the day of demonstration. Then Tuesday, he you know, he had gone back to Bethany, and on, a, on the way in to Jerusalem with his men, that's when the men noticed the figless fruit tree had withered and died. Then they go into the city, and it was a day of confrontation. Because he got attacked, you know, immediately by one sect of Israel after another, and they were all trying to trip him up with politically loaded questions or doctrinally or theologically loaded questions. Remember that? And then after that long day in the temple with all those guys, he went, left the city, and went up to the Mount of Olives, and that's when he gave his men the Olivet Discourse, and then proceeded on to Bethany, and that night, uh, was a confrontation with his own disciples. He, Mary anointed him with her precious spikenard perfume, and, and Judas got trouble stir, stirred in the air because he said, what a waste. And so he had a confrontation with his men. So Tuesday would be today, comparable, you know, Passion Week, the day of confrontation. All right, and then, of course, Wednesday was the day of preparation, and Thursday was the day of crucifixion in the way that we're, we're doing with Thursday crucifixion. All right, so that's just a review, and it's very interesting that since we are on the week of resurrection, um, that we are going to be looking this morning at the Lord's scourging, the sufferings of his awful, horrific scourging. It's not a lesson I exactly look forward to. It's also, we're going to be talking about how he was crowned with the um, crown of thorns, and I brought one we have in our home, in our yard um, a plant that the seeds were brought over from the Middle East. And my husband, when you, it grows really tall, and you can clip the limbs and let them dry and then actually twist them and form a, um, a crown like this. And so this is very, very similar, if not the same plant, very similar to the one that they took and put on his head. And I don't know if you can see how long the thorns are, but they're very, very sharp, like needles. Yesterday when I picked it up to show the Bible study, I actually pricked my finger. It was such a, I thought, well, this is a perfect illustration because I pricked, pricked, pricked my pinky and blood came out. But can you imagine when that shoved on the head, the forehead, and awful. But if you want to take a look at that, I think I'll go ahead and just put it on the Bible in the middle and make a pretty, yeah, be careful. Ah. <laughs> okay. Okay, but you can come up afterwards and take a look at that if you want to. All right, let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day again that you have given to us. Thank you for 
this week and all the things we have learned in the past that we can remember each and every day that things you went through in your last week on earth and um, getting ready for your passion, the suffering and the crucifixion. And we just thank you so much for everything that you went through for us. It's just unimaginable that you could have loved us that much, that you, that you went through these terrible, excruciatingly painful things, that you literally became the curse of sin for us and took all that, that man's depravity combined with Satan's hatred could throw at you. That's how much you loved us. I pray today that we would see afresh in our minds how much you did indeed love us how much you went through. If there is someone here who has never surrendered her heart and life to you, I pray today that somehow your spirit would take this lesson and really, Lord, just get through to her that that she needs to give her all to the one who gave his all for her. And the rest of us, I do pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will will take the words of Scripture and and the words of, of your servant and just help us to all understand in a better way refreshing way how much you do care about us we know that paul said that he may know you in the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings that's something that we don't really oh just we just don't really want to pray sometimes especially when we look at something like this to to know the fellowship of your sufferings to go through what you went through uh, Lord, I don't, I don't know, but I know that there is a blessing in it. And I pray that we would be able to, to pray, yes, I want to know you in the fullest way possible, even if I have to suffer and be persecuted for your name's sake. I don't, I don't know exactly how to pray, Lord, in a lesson like this, but I know that your Holy Spirit can, can intercede on our behalf and just have your will here this morning through, through, uh, through this lesson and through the song, the special song to follow. May you be glorified and may whatever passes here this morning truly put a smile on your face. For we pray Jesus in your name. Amen. I hope you can stick around and stay because we do have a very special song This when I close up that Linda is going to sing for us. And by the way, it is Linda's birthday. So she's going to sing on her own birthday. How about that? <laughs> All right, well, when the chief priests and the captains of the temple guard and um, the elders of the people came with Judas Iscariot and a cohort of Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane without any cause, you know, without any accusation, it was totally unjust. Do you remember the words of the Lord to them back in Luke twenty-two fifty-four? He said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And really, that statement from the Lord's lips answers for us all the questions that we might otherwise have as we wonder how in the world God the Father would allow his beloved Son to go through all these unjust atrocities, you know, that were committed against him, not only during the time of his arrest, but also during the six trials that he went through and the merciless scourging that we're going to look at this morning and, of course, his his crucifixion. Why? Why did God allow all that to, to happen to his son? Well, it is because he had planned from eternity past to let Satan and the powers of darkness have this hour. 
This was all planned by the triune Godhead from the beginning of time. And he revealed this to us, really, immediately after Satan brought sin and death into this world through Adam by Adam's disobedience to God's word. God revealed the now historic battle plan in another garden, a garden called Eden. What was that plan? God would put enmity between the serpent and his seed and the woman and her seed. And, of course, we know that Christ is the only person to ever have been born into this world through a woman's seed. Because women don't have seeds, so that was speaking of a miraculous birth, a virgin birth. And the Lord Jehovah God also gave the outcome of that age-long enmity between the serpent and his seed and the woman's seed. Uh, the woman, yeah, the woman's seed. And what was the outcome to be? Well, the serpent would bruise the Savior's heel. What does that mean? Right, it's not a fatal blow. You can bruise somebody's heel, and that's not going to really kill them, unless their name is Achilles. <laughs> but that speaks of a non-fatal blow, whereas the Savior would bruise the serpent's head, and that is speaking about a fatal blow. And we learn, of course, throughout the whole Old Testament, that Satan, upon hearing that in the garden, immediately launched a campaign to prevent the bruiser of his head from ever coming into the world through the woman. And the woman, of course, initially pictured Eve. It would be through her seed, right, that the Savior would come. And then the woman came to picture the nation of Israel, because it would be through Israel that the Savior would come. And then ultimately, most specifically, the woman pictured Mary, the mother of Jesus, the virgin mother of Jesus. And time and time again, from the murder of righteous Abel by his rebellious brother Cain, who was a seed of the serpent, to the many attempts throughout the Old Testament scripture, as we read through, we find out Satan attempted to annihilate Israel. Just, you know, like today, the seed of the serpent still wants to annihilate Israel, right? So throughout, we read that Satan is always busy trying to use the Philistines or the Hittites or somebody to annihilate Israel or to amalgamate her, to cause her to intermarry with other people groups so that she would just, you know, blend in and, and be, not become, not stay a separate uh, people group, a, a nation. And later, of course, he particularly honed in on the Davidic line. Satan was busily at work trying to make it impossible for the promised seed of the woman to come to earth as prophesied. You see? Because if he came to the earth any other way than how it was prophesied, he would come, you know, from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc., down through the Davidic line. Then he would disqualify to be the Messiah. You know, even if he was born, if he didn't come from the right lineage and everything else, he would disqualify to be our Messiah. And that's what Satan was trying to do. And when he failed in that mission, which he worked at for 4,000 years, and every time, you know, God would override every attempt that he would make. But when he failed in that, and a young female descendant of David carried in her womb one conceived not by a man's seed, the normal way, but by the Holy Spirit of God, one whose name was Emmanuel, God with us, 
Satan then got busy attempting to destroy him once he was here. And how did he do it right from the beginning? Herod, Herod the Great. He used Herod the Great, a wicked man, you know, to uh, slaughter all the young, young little boys in Bethlehem, the slaughter of the innocents. And of course, we have seen throughout the Lord's ministry that Satan attempted to destroy him repeatedly. Uh, he, either by tempting him to sin, because if he sinned, then he would do it disqualified to be the Savior, wouldn't he? And so we, you know, we, we saw right away the, the temptation in the wilderness, and there were other times when he tempted him, like to take a crown before the cross and all that sort of thing. But Jesus never sinned, did he? Not once. Not once. Could he have sinned? No. He could not have sinned because he's God, and he was 100% God and 100% man. Remember, we talked about this, you weren't here then. But the doctrine of impeccability means that he was impeccable. He could not sin because his divine nature always overrode his human nature. So it was impo- he could be tempted to sin, but he could not succumb to sin. He could never... God, there's one thing God can't do. God cannot sin. Anyway, so, but he tried to get him to sin, and then he tried to kill him sometimes by, uh, for example, once uh, when he was on the Sea of Galilee and Satan stirred up a, a storm. He wanted Jesus and the disciples to drown. That was a satanically, there were several storms, but one of them was a satanically produced storm. But of course, Jesus stood up and said, peace be still, that was the end of that. And then Satan tried to get other people to kill him. We know many times that, you know, the, the people of Nazareth tried to push him off a cliff. Many times the, the Pharisees would pick up stones to stone him. But he was always unsuccessful in, in destroying Jesus. He was always thwarted in every one of his premature death plots. And why was that? Right, because it was not God's divinely appointed hour. But now... As the Lord said to his arresters in Gethsemane, the hour had come. God would no longer hinder Satan and his powers of darkness. Satan would be allowed to unleash all of his fury on the person of the Son of God. All of his fury. And he's been at this, you know, up to the point of Jesus, 4,000 years. He's had a lot of stored up fury. And so he wanted Jesus to be betrayed by one of his own disciples. He wanted Jesus betrayed by his own people, the Jews. He wanted Jesus to feel the horrible pain of betrayal by those he loved. He, he uh, did not realize, of course, that when he whispered into the ears of his human dupes um, that he, what he was doing all along was in complete accordance with God's redemptive plan. Satan was just unleashing his anger and his hatred against the woman's seed. But in doing it, he's fulfilling God's word. And when the permission came, and I guess we could technically say that the permission for Satan to have his way came when Jesus in the upper room said to Judas, who was now possessed by Satan himself, what thou doest, do quickly. I guess that's officially when the permission was given to him. Satan wanted Jesus arrested. He wanted him bound in chains and humiliated and and tried in the most unfair series of six trials that this world has ever seen. Can you imagine having six trials and every one of them so unjust as the ones we have been looking at? Six. Why do you think there were six trials? What's man's number? What's the Antichrist number going to be? 
666. This was man at his worst, influenced, of course, by Satan. You know, there were also, if you go through the Gospels, six recorded accusations against Jesus, that he was a male factor, that he... I, I could repeat them to you, I won't take up the time, but six accusations, too, that they gave. Six trials, six... Ac- it's, uh, it's all, it was all about what man, you know, man's sin influenced by Satan. It was Satan who wanted Jesus to be mocked and fist-punched in the gut and in the face, you know, spit upon right in the eyes. That's all Satan's doing. And he wanted him beaten without mercy as a criminal, which is what the scourging was, or what it suggested, that he was a criminal, even though he wasn't. It was Satan who wanted Jesus tortured to death by the worst means that man could devise. Crucifixion. Can you imagine nails that long being hammered into your wrists and your feet while you're totally alert? Awful. Terrible. All divine restraint was removed so that human depravity was able to show the worst of itself. And this is why when it came to the arrest and to the trials, you know, both Jewish and Roman, Jewish and Gentile, and the sufferings of Jesus, this is why everything goes way beyond the bounds of reasonable understanding. Haven't you scratched your head many times as we've been looking at these trials and said, this just goes beyond the mark, doesn't it? There's nothing that was done to Jesus that really is makes sense. Nothing was done that was just or lawful according to either Jewish or Roman law. Everything was just out of whack. All the plans of Pilate. Now, there was one man who tried to do what was right. Poor Pilate. You know, Pilate, he wanted to do what was right, but all his plans went wrong, didn't they? Every single one of them. So that that there was not one shred of mercy shown to Jesus. Not one. And so we've been studying this for quite some time, and it just all looks so very wicked, doesn't it? Very wicked and very satanic. And why is that? Because that's exactly what it was. It was very satanic. Satan was the spiritual father of the Jewish religious leaders and the very easily persuaded mob who chose one of their brothers, one of their spiritual brothers, Barabbas, over Jesus. Satan was also the spiritual father of both of the Gentile rulers at this time, Pilate and Herod and their mocking soldiers. And they were all busily carrying out their father's will against the woman's seed, even though they had no idea. None of them had any clue that that what they were doing was bruising the Savior's heel, fulfilling the battle plan from the very beginning that God had said would happen. Now, we need to remember all of this, that Satan is behind this. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when we discuss today the scourging of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is really just beyond comprehension that man could do this kind of thing to a fellow man. I don't know about you, but it just always blows me away what men can do to their fellow man, doesn't it? What in children and women and what, what what the depraved human heart is capable of because I don't even like to hit a squirrel in the road. I, I just don't understand how people can do these horrible things to each other. 
But it just shows the truth of, of Jeremiah 17, 9, that the unredeemed man, you know, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The heart, who can know it? It's just, it's just evil. I guess we're all capable of the worst crimes we can even imagine under the right circumstances. And, uh, but when you add the fact that this was also the work of Satan bruising the Savior's heel, we can better understand why it was all so excruciatingly wicked. And even in that fact, there is great wonder. You know, when we think about the fact that this is the worst that the depraved Jewish world, plus the worst that the depraved Gentile world could do to Jesus, with the full support and influence and prodding of Satan and all his invisible forces of darkness, this, you know, this is the combined evil of the whole world. Man and, you know, this fallen spirit world. And yet, the wonder of it is that the worst they could do to the Lord was bruise his heel. That's it. Bruise his heel. In other words, it was absolutely not fatal. And we know that because what happened on the third day? He rose. Satan finally, after millennia, he finally managed to have his way and torture and kill the Son of God. But all it really amounted to, after all those thousands of years of, of getting to that point where he finally thought he had success, was a bruise. A bruise. Not even a broken heel. A bruise to the Lord's heel. You see, Satan is crafty. He's been at his job a long time. He's very sly. He's very intelligent, very well informed. He's an expert at studying human nature and depravity. At the time of Christ, now remember this would be 2,000 years ago, at the time of Christ, Satan would have known the Old Testament inside and out, right? Studying it for all those years. Although there were likely some passages that he could just not quite figure out. Uh, you know, he's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He does not have the mind of God. Far from it, actually. And so as he's for 4,000 years, or whenever Moses wrote, you know, the first five books, and then he was studying the scriptures, because he can read, he's intelligent, he's a personal being. And so he's studying the scriptures, but I, there were passages that he could not figure out. You know, he would not have had the key to unlock some of those Old Testament mystery passages. What is the key? The New Testament. See, at the time of Christ, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And I got to thinking about this. You know, why? sometimes I wonder, why, why didn't you make some of these things more clear, Lord, so that the Jews wouldn't have missed them, and you know, a lot of people wouldn't miss them, and you could just spell it out. Jesus is going to be born in such and such a year, and it's going to be through Mary, a descendant of David and, and Joseph, who won't, you know, and just spell it all out. And he will, well, he, you know, when I look back, I think it is pretty clear he'll be rejected, and, you know. But to them, it was all sort of, it was, it was a mystery. We know how it works out because we have the New Testament, and we have history, too. It actually all happened. But I got to thinking maybe the reason that God made it kind of, Veiled is not only so that we would dig harder, but so that Satan wouldn't figure it all out. Had you ever thought about that? And he didn't have it all figured out. 
He was confused. He didn't have the New Testament. The evil one obviously did not understand that the Savior was going to do his saving work by way of his shed blood and his death by crucifixion and his resurrection. You see, he wasn't present that day in eternity past when Jehovah told his son that fulfilling his mission would mean that he would give his his human back to the smiters. He would not turn his cheek from those who pulled out his beard. He would not hide his face from shame and from spitting. Now, we would ask, is that a wise course? Is that prudent? Is that a way to succeed? To allow, you know, God to allow his son and to come to earth and, and to suffer all that shame and humiliation and suffering? You know, the scoffers say no. Who wants to believe in a bloody Jesus? Even Peter, when he first heard about it, what was his response? He said, Lord, no, this shall not be unto thee. You're not going to die. You see, the flesh rears up its head and takes counsel with itself. And the flesh, you know, in its enmity against God, says, save yourself. Says that that plan is crazy. No, no, no. Save yourself. Self-sacrifice isn't wise. It's not prudent. Here's what's wise. Strike back when you're stricken, smitten. Revile back when somebody reviles you. But God thinks differently than man, doesn't he? And Satan. Praise the Lord, he does. (laughs) And when his son experienced all the horrors of his suffering... God said, my son is dealing wisely. This is prudent. This is wise. I'm quoting right from Isaiah 52, 13, by the way. He said, uh, well, the the next thing I'm going to quote is from Isaiah 42. He said, behold, my servant. And this is one of the, they call these the servant songs or the servant psalms. They come from Isaiah. There's different passages in Isaiah 42, all the way to the famous Isaiah 53. And most of them start with, Behold my servant. It's God speaking about the coming Messiah. And this one is in Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, in whom my soul delighteth. He shall not fail in his mission, nor be discouraged, till he has set judgment on the earth. You see, the humiliating sufferings of the Son of God were for the purpose of fulfilling his mission. What mission? Well, more than just his mission when he came to seek and to save that which was lost. God here is talking about his overall redemptive mission. What was that mission? It was to come and set judgment on the earth, to make everything right again. You know, to return not only humanity, but creation back to its original perfection. Wouldn't you like to see that? His righteous judgment, you see, will not only be prospective for the future. Oh, one day everything is going to be set right. But his righteous judgment is going to reach all the way back and be retrospective as well. It's going to include undoing All the wrong that has been done throughout all of the centuries. All wrong is going to be judged. Everything is going to be, all things are going to work out together for good, ultimately. 
And God's people said, can't wait, right? (laughs) Can't wait. See, even though the cross, the cross, got the right color on it today. Even though the cross looks like the greatest tragedy in all of history, it is, in effect, the most practical, the most profitable, and the most successful event that has ever, ever taken place in this world. Without the cross... Wrong would never be righted. Without the cross, my guilt and your guilt, our sin, would never be washed away. Without the cross, our hands would never be pure. Our lives would never be cleansed. Our consciences would never know peace. And our standing before God would never have any assurance. So this was, as God said to his son, this was wise. This was the only wise course, Christ's suffering and death, so that one day everything wrong could be righted. Now, Satan did not know that what he was doing in his hour of unrestrained hatred and unleashed fury against God's Son was actually all part of the Father's redemptive plan. He didn't figure all that out. He did not know that he was actually doing the bidding of Jehovah God so that the shed blood, the death, and the resurrection of Christ put that fatal blow on his own head. He's the one who made it all possible to hit, you know, for said the Savior to put the fatal blow on his head. He didn't know that it was God and Christ himself who were purposely allowing him to have this hour of darkness and that they had removed their hands of restraint because the son was at that very time, at this very time of his sufferings, he is beginning his work of redempting mankind. And because the Lamb of God was dying for the sin of the entire world, therefore sin in its fullest, most grotesque, most heinous enormity must be revealed. And who better qualified than Satan and his powers of darkness to reveal that sin. What is sin? How can we define sin? Well, one word to define sin is lawlessness, isn't it? Sin is lawlessness. So why should we be surprised then that all six of the Lord's trials and the mockery that he encountered from both the Jews and the Gentiles and the horrific, unjustified scourging were all done done without any consideration whatsoever for either the laws of the Jews, which were based on Mosaic law. They were good laws. Or the normally very just Roman laws. Why should we be surprised that everything done to Jesus was lawless? Isn't that what sin is? Lawlessness? Wasn't he becoming sin for us and taking on all the punishment of sin for us? And what else is sin? It's iniquity. Iniquity. You know, things aren't fair, not equal. Um, And so the Jewish temple guard, Herod's men of war, and the soldiers, the Roman soldiers of Pilate, were permitted to smite and to mock one who had never hurt a single soul. Isn't that iniquity? Not fair, not right? So should we be surprised at that? Not really. What else is sin? It's lawlessness, it's iniquity, it's rebellion. Rebellion against who? 
rebellion against God. And so again, both unredeemed Jews and Gentiles, see everything that was done to Jesus, whether he was mocked or spit upon or uh, hurt, the Jews did it and the Gentiles did it. Everything, even the spitting. The Gentiles also spit on him. All these who are in a spiritual state of rebellion against God irreverently mistreated God's son. Of course, sin is rebellion against God. So they can't reach God, so they're going to mistreat God's son. And then too, sin is defilement, which could hardly be represented better than by the spit of the Jews in the face of the Son of God and the spit of the Gentiles in the face of the Son of God. Matthew 27, 29, and 30. I know we haven't gotten there yet, but I think we get there next week or three weeks from now. So this was Satan's hour of darkness, and we're definitely going to know that as we go into the next series of lessons that will even carry over into the fall, of course, when we get to the crucifixion. This is his hour of darkness, and yet, as always, God was the one who was very, very, very much in control of the whole thing. So, we're currently now in the midst of discussing the Lord's third Roman trial, which was a two-phase trial before Pontius Pilate that was divided by a break, a recess, in which Jesus was scourged. Pilate, we learned, had had failed miserably to turn away the Jews from their determination to get Jesus crucified. He had tried a number of escape plans, hadn't he? You have to give him credit, he did try. I mean, you really don't give him too much credit because he should have just released his prisoner. But he did try to uh, find some loopholes. And his latest one was to give the people the choice of freeing Jesus by way of the amnesty custom of the Passover. Also, in a totally unjustified compromise, he told them that he would scourge Jesus before he released him. Didn't make any sense, but then remember, this is all satanic, right? He had just said for the second time, I find no fault in him, he's innocent. Herod says he's innocent too, but I'll scourge him. (laughs) And then I'll release him. Obviously, he was confident that after they saw Jesus in his scourge condition, the Jewish people, in their sympathy, would definitely choose Jesus rather than Barabbas to be released. However, Pilate still did not know his opponents well enough, even after five or six years of ruling over them. Nor did he understand at all the satanic hatred behind this very unique situation. Because the chief priests, we learn, moved like an earthquake through the crowds, shaking up the people into a frenzy until they shouted with one voice, away with this man, speaking of Christ, and release unto us Barabbas. Luke twenty three eighteen. You know, at the Passover, national feelings always ran very high because it was a time when the Jewish people were remembering their forefathers' miraculous de- deliverance from their bondage in Egypt. And who had God used to deliver them? A man named Moses. <laughs> and like Moses, you see, Barabbas was a man who had tried to do something about their current oppression, not under the Egyptians, but under the, the Romans. And also, think about this, like Moses, Barabbas had even murdered for the cause. 
Moses had murdered an Egyptian, hadn't he? Well, Barabbas, in, in doing, you know, trying to do his part in delivering his people, also murdered. Now, they had thought, they had thought that Jesus was going to be their modern-day Moses because he could certainly perform miracles. And Moses had performed miracles, right? So it made sense to them that Jesus was going to be their modern-day Moses. But he had become a great disappointment to them when he made it clear that he would not accept their offered kingship back in John chapter 6. Nor was he going to use his power to be able to perform miracles or his power of speech to lead a popular uprising against Rome and deliver them. That became abundantly clear, especially during the Passion Week. When he rode in, you know, on Sunday and on the donkey and and they thought something would happen, this was going to be it, and then he didn't do anything. They were very disappointed. Well, Barabbas had no special miraculous powers, but at least he'd been willing to stand up and fight. So when a mob of people is moved by crafty, self-centered, envious leaders, the religious rulers, who are in turn being used by Satan as human pawns, and when the atmosphere is thick, with patriotic fever, and when the whole thing is under the authority of a compromising, wishy-washy, unprincipled, self-centered politician, Pilate, who puts his own needs above law and justice and who ignores the warnings of his own conscience and the warnings of his wife, you then, if you put all that together, what do you have? A formula for disaster. Israel cried out for Barabbas instead of Jesus, and she has been paying the price ever since, hasn't she? Amen. Sad. Even after hearing the crowds shocking, this shocked Pilate. He really thought they would pick Jesus, but when he heard their cry for Barabbas's release and Jesus's crucifixion, he still didn't get, give up hope that he could yet release Jesus and still appease the jealous Jewish leaders and therefore prevent them from getting him in trouble with Caesar. That was the bottom line of everything, right? He wanted to hold on to his position. So he would still carry out his plan to play upon the crowd's sympathy with a scourged Jesus. How could, in his thinking, how could the people, and even their leaders, not let up a little bit when they would see Jesus in that horrific post-scourging condition? They surely wouldn't be able to feel good about it, especially in his case, because everybody out there knew that he was a good man, that he had never done anything but good for people everywhere he went. Even Pilate could see, and you know, he wasn't even Jewish, he could see that there was nothing evil about this man, Jesus. There was nothing to dislike about him. In fact, there was a whole lot to admire about him. And so he would go ahead with his idea satanically induced idea, to have Jesus scourged. Uh, Hopefully, even the Sanhedrin members would be appeased by this because it would mean that they could always remind the people that Jesus was scourged and therefore he could be considered a criminal. Rome wouldn't scourge him unless he was a criminal. And so he, he turned the innocent Jesus over to his soldiers for scourging. Pilate was, as one commentator wrote, and I read it this week, he was a paradox in stupidity. 
I like that. I wrote that down. He was a paradox in stupidity. If he would do this to an innocent man, what might he do to a guilty man? Awful. So that's our introduction, and now we're going to get into our lesson. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's look. We're only going to look at three verses. So let's look now at John 19, verses 1 to 3. Then Pilate, therefore, took Jesus and scourged him. Of course, you know Pilate himself didn't scourge the Lord. His soldiers scourged him. And that's what it says in verse 2, basically. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Actually, the uh, ancients used to call any color that had a little bit of red in it, they called it purple. If you go over to Matthew, he actually says it was scarlet. So it was more scarlet, you know, had more of a red, reddish purple, okay, to it, the robe they put on him. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. Of course, they're mocking here, and they smote him with their hands. That's all we're going to discuss this morning, those three verses. Now, it's interesting to notice how very discreet all four gospel accounts are about the sufferings of the Son of God. They do not give us very much information at all, no details about either the scourging of the Lord or the crucifixion of the Lord. For example, look at what John, we just read it, look at what John says about these two unbelievably painful events. In verse 1, we simply read that Pilate scourged him. That's it. Any details there about the scourging? No. Now look over at verse 18. Same chapter. John merely tells us that when Jesus arrived at Golgotha, they crucified him. That's it. They crucified him. No details about nails, hammering, any of that. Nothing. Therefore, to learn more about what a Roman scourging involved and what a Roman crucifixion involved, we must go to other God-inspired passages of the scripture. Not the Gospels, not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're very discreet. That's all they tell us, basically. He was scourged, he was crucified. We have to go to other books of the Bible, or we even have to go to history. You know, extra-biblical information that will tell us about a Roman scourging and a Roman crucifixion. In John's one simple verse about the scourging of the Lord by Roman soldiers, there is more cruelty involved than any of us can even begin to imagine. There was, you see, a Jewish, a Jewish scourging, and there was a Roman scourging. And if anybody was given a choice between the two, which one do you think they would choose? The Jewish, any day, they would choose, a, and that wasn't pleasant at all, but they would choose a Jewish scourging over a Roman. What's the difference? Well, <clears throat> for one thing, there was generally only one man who inflicted punishment upon the victim in a Jewish scourging. You know, one man with the whip, just one. Whereas in a Roman scourging, oftentimes there were two men, one on each side of the victim, and they took turns inflicting their blows so that they came in much more rapid fire succession one after the other for another thing the jews in their modesty would only bear the upper half of the victim's body so they only take his clothes off from his waist up whereas the romans would expose the entire body to the to the cruel whips also the jews as you know from the life of the apostle paul counted 
the number of lashes, and they would never exceed 39, whereas the Romans had no magical number to stop. They laid them on without mercy. Now, we should remember that the Romans looked at mercy as a weakness of character. The gods and the goddesses that they worshipped were not known for their mercy. The gods and goddesses they worshipped, if you know anything about Roman mythology or Greek mythology, were cruel, lustful, sensual, self-centered gods and goddesses. Just awful, merciless. And why is that? Because man created his gods in his own image. (laughs) So that's what they were like. Um, And when it came to inflicting punishment, (laughs) the Romans seemed to delight in brutality. The bloodier and, and the more shockingly horrifying is like the better they liked it, which we have to find is true, not only in their use of crucifixion as a means of prolonging the unbelievably excruciating pain, painful death of someone, you know, that just stretched it out, crucifixion. Some, some men, you know, if they didn't break the legs, they could hang there for days dying in that kind of pain. But but we see this also not only by the means of crucifixion, but also in the gladiator fights that they used to enjoy going to watch and in the way that they martyred tens of thousands of Christians, you know, by, by uh, feeding them to the lions. They would even wrap them in skins of animals and put them out in the arena, young children and women and awful old people, and, and watch and cheer and eat their popcorn while they're being eaten. By the lions, can you imagine? And they would even douse the Christians with oil and then set them on fire and use them as torchlights for their sports events. Burning people. Just sick, isn't it? So sick. Now the torment tool was a whip. And the word is, in the Greek, it's what we get our English word for flagellate from. What they use, the whip, the flat, you know. So, they would flagellate. The whip consisted of a, a short wooden handle to which were attached several leather straps or, or thongs, each of which was loaded with sharp pieces of metal, uh, iron, bone, or glass. And the victim was either stretched against a pillar or uh, tied to a pole by his wrists, high over his head, with his feet dangling and his body very, you know, taut, or he was bent over a low post with his hands tied so that he would have no way of defending himself. And remember the Romans now, the whole body is exposed to the whips. And the first blow would knock all the breath out of the victim's body, as you can imagine. The second blow would begin to lay open the skin. Each consecutive Lash would then proceed to rip the flesh from the bones. It would lacerate the muscles, tear open veins and arteries, and it was not uncommon at all for vital organs such as the kidneys and the spleen to be exposed and slashed. The flesh would actually take on the appearance of bloody raw hamburger meat. Scourging, of course, as we can't even begin to imagine. I don't even like it when I stub my toe. But it was so painful that most victims passed out. I, I know I surely would. Just They just pass out during it. 
frequently the victim wouldn't even survive, especially a Roman scourging. And those who did survive and were not then crucified often died later from bleeding to death or from damage done to their internal organs. Those who did not die during or after a scourging were maimed for life, could never ever return to a normal life. The pain was horrific, to say the least. And the inability of our Lord to carry his own cross beam to the place of execution was no doubt at all related to the inflictions he received during the scourging. To me, it's a testimony of his fine physical shape that he could even carry the cross beam part of the way to the cross because those cross beams were heavy. And then when you think about the fact that they put him in that condition with his back just torn to pieces and he is put on a cross, a rugged cross, and you know to be able to breathe on the cross they would have to push their feet up so they could get some air and then you know they'd collapse again. But the whole time he's having to do that for six hours on the cross, what is happening to his back? It's rub his raw exposed back is rubbing up against that wood and splinters and oh horrible. So don't ever I don't want you to ever picture the Lord as some skinny, milk toast, wimpy kind of a guy like so many religious pictures portray him. That is not the way our Lord could he he was a fine physical specimen of a man. To be able to survive this and then, you know, on the cross. He never did die from the physical sufferings, did he? He gave up his own ghost. So don't picture him like, and then there's so many pictures. Well, of course, I guess they don't want to show us a picture of what he really looked like on the cross, which would be awful to look at. But you see him on the cross and there's like nothing wrong with him, you know? He looks complete and whole, maybe has a couple drops of blood up here and that's it. Wrong picture, completely wrong picture. This horrific ordeal that he went through, just here in this scourging, doesn't just tell us something about the Lord's physical condition, his body, but it also speaks volumes, and this is more important, about his inner strength, his inner strength. He did not utter a single word of complaint during either his scourging or the scorning that follows this with the crown of thorns and the purple robe that's put upon his raw back. Think about that, too. They put on probably a Roman soldier's cape on his raw, bloody back. But not a single word came out of his mouth in anger. Or even like, ouch! Nothing. No bitterness, no reproach to either the soldiers or to Pilate or to Satan whom I'm sure the Lord could see smirking in the corner over there, watching the whole thing. Nor did he scream out at his heavenly father. You know, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Why are you forsaking me? Not one word. Can you imagine that? He didn't deserve it, did he? Totally unjustified. Why was there such total silence? Well, again, he was the lamb. The lamb. Wouldn't you think, therefore, that such unique silence and dignity and calm control and composure would send a wave of hushed respect and even fear 
among the men administering this punishment? Wouldn't you? They've never seen anybody go through this like that. I think I would have thought, whoa, there is something very different about this man. And so you think they would have fear or respect or something, but they didn't. Instead, it inspired their sick, depraved hearts to have a little more fun, inflicting a little further torment on their submissive victim. They were going to use him to vent some of their anger and hatred against the Jewish people. Oh, this is the king of the Jews. We hate the Jews. So let's use him as our, you know, vent our anger on a punching, you know, use him as our punching bag. They would mock his supposed Jewish kingship with a thorny crown and a scarlet-covered robe. And as we've seen throughout the Lord's Passion, there's hardly an incident relating to this whole ordeal of his sufferings that was not addressed in Old Testament prophecy. Haven't we seen that? Everything he went through was pre-told. And this includes his scourging, of course. Nothing of all these events at all surprised the Lord Jesus. He knew, we talked about Satan knowing the Old Testament. Guess what? Jesus really knew the Old Testament. He wrote it. None of those passages were mysteries to him. He had read and knew and wrote through the psalmist in Psalm 129.3 that these words, he actually said, the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. This tells us of a Roman scourging, by the way, because how many plowers are there? At least two. They made their long furrows on my back. If it was a Jewish scourging, it would have been he, singular. He also spoke, the Lord, of his scourging through his prophet Isaiah, when he said, I gave my back to the smiters, Isaiah 50, verse 6. And of course, we all know about Isaiah 53, verse 5, which tells us that God's servant, the Messiah, would be bruised for our iniquities. And it would be with his stripes that we are healed. To his disciples, he had even given this prediction. So we know he knew it was coming because he said to them in Mark 10, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. So the scourging was not a surprise to him at all. He knew it was coming. And the scourging was followed by the scorning. And it was like pouring salt into an open wound. The scorning now we find this is the fourth time. The fourth time ungodly men take their delight in scorning, mocking Jesus Christ. First, remember, there was the uh, the physical abuse that he suffered at the hands of the Jews, you know, the actual elite members of the Sanhedrin council who spit in his face. They were the first ones to spit in his face. And remember, they buffeted him with their fists in, in his face and on his body. And then, remember, they turned him over to the temple guard who blindfolded him. And they punched him in the face, slapped him, you know, they're following their leaders, and they punched him in the face and ridiculed his prophetic skills, saying, Okay, you're a prophet, prophesy unto us. Who smote you, Jesus? Ha, ha, ha. And then the third time there was mockery was in uh, uh, Herod's palace when he and his men of war 
laughed at his supposed kingship as they arrayed Jesus in a gorgeous robe. And now, this is the fourth time of mockery, some of Pilate's soldiers showed their contempt for the Jews and their nation, the nation of Israel, by making sport of their supposed king. This is the king of the Jews. They treated him as though he was some self-deceived nutcase who thought he was a king. You know, they probably had never had a prisoner who claimed to be a royal rival to Caesar before. So this was going to be fun, you know. <laughs> look at him, especially after his scourging. He didn't even look like a man, much less a king. And it's interesting, I got to think about, and this is in your notes, but the Jewish temple guard mocked Jesus as a prophet. You know, they were the ones who blindfolded him and hit him and said, prophesy him. So they're mocking him as a prophet. But the Gentile soldiers mocked his claim to being a what? A king. So you see, he was mocked as both a prophet and a king, wasn't he? Fact is, he is both. And one more, priest, prophet, priest, and king. And when I was studying this, one verse that just keeps sticking out at me is uh, from Galatians 6 and 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. These men are all going to reap what they did here because God is not mocked, and you don't get away with that. Well, one soldier probably had the idea of making a crown for Jesus' head out of a nearby thorn bush, perhaps right there in the Praetorium courtyard. By the way, this they all say was going on in the courtyard of the Praetorium, you know, beyond ground, surrounded by the buildings. And I'm not going to take the time right now to tell you about all the different plants that uh, the crown of thorns could have come from, plants that grow in that area of the Middle East, similar, very similar to what I've got down here on the, on the um, table. But uh, all that's in your book, so can, you can look and read about it later. But somebody did take branches from a plant that had, had uh, long thorns in it, and the soldiers of Pilate placed, you know, they, they formed it into a crown, and they placed it upon Jesus' head as a mockery crown the type, you know, that imitated the victor's wreath of triumph. Or even, you know, when you picture Caesar, he always had some kind of a little crown. You know, they're just mocking the fact that he was a king. And they would have put that crown down hard on his on his brow. And the pain arising from the pressure of those thorns into the soft, thin skin of the forehead must have been bad, not good. Blood would immediately have begun to run down from his forehead in many places, you know, wherever the thorns were, all around his head, but on his face, they'd run, the blood would run into his eyes and his cheeks and onto his chin, and it would mix with the saliva and the sweat that would already be there from all the previous abuse. Later on, in another week or two, we're going to learn that they also gave him a imitation king's scepter which would have come from a wooden stalk of common cane grass, which was like a walking cane, stiff, not a flimsy weed kind of a thing. They gave him this cane for a scepter. You know, your king, ha, 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 here's your crown, here's your cape, here's your staff, your scepter. And they took that cane and they beat him on the head with it. You can read about it. It's in the Matthew 27 somewhere. Um, and, and you can imagine as he's being beaten on the head with that crown of thorns there, that's just stabbing those thorns into his forehead even further so that he would look by now 
totally gruesome, just gruesome. In fact, I want to back up that statement about looking gruesome. And to do this, I want you to flip over to um, Isaiah 52, please. Isaiah 52. I told you earlier that even though the Gospels tell us practically nothing at all about the Lord's scourging, other than the fact that he was scourged, uh, we do have a record of it in Isaiah, in one of the amazing passages of Isaiah known as the Servant Songs, like I told you earlier, the Servant Psalms or the Servant Songs. And they are scattered. I would love to do a study on these one day with you. Um, they're scattered from Isaiah 42 to Isaiah 53. And this particular one comes from Isaiah 52:14. It starts actually in 52:13, where it says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. Remember I said he would deal wisely. He shall be exalted and extolled and very high. It talks about one day, you know, when the Lord will, his name will be above every name and he will, everything will be at his feet and he'll rule, he'll be ruler over everything. He'll be exalted above all. But to show the comparison of his exaltation, it talks about the depths in the next verse of his humiliation. You know, you don't know how tall something is really until you compare it with something low. Like how tall is Mount Everest? Well, compare it to the depths of the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on planet Earth. And then you see how high it is. So to compare the exaltation of the Lord, we see the humility of the Lord in the next verse. And what does this tell us there? It says, as many were astonished. Don't you love that King James word? Aston- Have you ever been astonished? <laughs> it means astonished. As many were astonished at thee. He's talking to his servant, the Messiah. His visage, that's his face, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form, his body, more than the sons of men. Now, this verse is definitely messianic, but it's not really saying what it sounds like it's saying in the English. Okay, In the English, doesn't it seem to be saying that Jesus looked worse than any man has ever looked? Doesn't that seem what it's saying? But you know what? There have been some people who have just been... They could never even have carried the crossbeam. There have been worse conditions of men than this. His was bad, but it wasn't worse than any man. The Hebrew words for more than, which are used twice in that verse, you know, that it says his face marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men, actually speaks of separation rather than comparison. So what it literally means is this. It literally means that his face and his form, his face and his body, were so marred that he seemed to be separated from manhood and from the sons of men. He didn't even resemble a human being anymore. It was so bad that many were astonished. He was absolutely gross to look at. You know, the flesh is very soft. Our hands, you know, and our backs and our faces with all of the delicate bones that are so close to the skin, like in the forehead. You know, there's not much skin, you know, and and there's my bone. Same thing with the nose and the cheeks and the chin. So they're so close that it doesn't take much of, of sharp thorns or pieces of metal or broken pieces of glass or stone or slicing leather to mar the softness and the, and the delicacy of the face. So these statements from Isaiah give us insight 
into what the Lord looked like as he was bearing his crossbeam to Golgotha. And all along the way, the people were stunned, stunned when they looked at him. And this is the depravity, this is the depth of the depravity that he suffered for our sins. Let's make this personal. He did this for who? For me. For you. For me. Personally. You know, after mankind's fall in Adam, back in the garden, remember God pronounced a curse upon man that involved the ground? What was that curse? He said, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. I hate the curse, don't you? I'm, I'm suffering with it now in my garden as I'm pulling weeds. And, you know, a rose is so beautiful, right, Sylvia? I love roses, but I can't go and clip any roses without putting on some gloves because what'll get me every time? Thorns. They're all, it's all part of the curse. Now, because thorns are rightfully due the first Adam and all of his descendants, it was fitting that the last Adam, Jesus Christ, as the head of all those he came to deliver from the curse, was crowned with what? With thorns. Also, since Christ would literally become sin for us, and how does God see sin? He sees our sins are as scarlet and crimson in God's sight, Isaiah 1.18. What, what better way for this to be pictured than Christ with thorns on his marred head and a scarlet, purplish robe covering his marred body. Perfect picture, isn't it, of him becoming sin for us. The forces of darkness were having a heyday there in the praetorium. The Roman soldiers then proceeded to strike Jesus in the face with their hands, just like that temple guard struck him when he was standing before Annas, remember? Slapped him in the face. And do you think they had any regard for the fact that he had a crown of thorns on his head when they're slapping him? Sure, they weren't just taking aim at his cheeks softly. No, they're slapping him around. But amidst all of this heartless, unwarranted abuse, the Lord stood again in silent dignity. Why? Because he was the lamb who willingly was substituting himself as the curse of sin and sin itself in all of its ugliness so that you and I might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so that all that is wrong in this world, and there is a lot of wrong in this world, and all that has been wrong in this world ever since the fall of Adam might be reversed and restored. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And you know what else all of God's people say? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. How we want to see everything made right. All right, let's pray. And then we'll have our special. Father, we do thank you. And we thank our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. <coughs> that he was wounded, he was pressed, he was tormented. Unbelievably so, for our transgressions. And he, he was bruised for our iniquities. 
and that the chastisement was put upon him so that we could know his peace and that with his stripes we are healed. We cannot thank you enough for that truth. Thank you that you were crowned with thorns so that we might be crowned one day with glory and blessing. And thank you that you were willing to be clothed with a robe of contempt and and mockery that we might be clothed with a robe of righteousness. We cannot thank you enough for all of this, Lord. We don't deserve it. We're not worthy of such redemption and such love. But we thank you that you thought so. And now we ask that you would bless us through the birthday girl, Linda, in whose name, I mean, not in her name, but in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Almost prayed in your name, Linda. (laughs) Wow. That's putting you on a pedestal. All right, Linda. Hope I can sing after that. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I was so lost, I should have died. But you have brought me to your side 
Jesus Christ, the Lamb. 